But let me spell out what the basic problem is so we can see how dramatic the mismatch is. The, the ABA statistics on the class of 2011 were recently released and only 55% of graduates nationwide, nine months after graduation of the class of 2011, had obtained full-time permanent lawyer jobs, jobs as lawyers, so it's called the bar passage required category. That's 55%. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and beautiful Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? Craig, I'm starting to think the Southern California Tourist Bureau owes you a, a little debt of gratitude for constantly promoting the wonderful weather there. But uh, we've got some good weather up here. Yeah, and I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, another blog called Media Law. Well, thank you, Bob. It, it does remind me of when my mom was alive. She used to call me, and she always asked me what the weather was out in Southern California. So I always told her it was sunny and mild, because that's all it ever is. <laughs> in any event, uh, and uh, Debbie's visiting you, isn't it? Or about to, on your way. So you're about to get drenched. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah, I feel sorry for the folks in Florida who are dealing with that. Well, Bob, we'd like to take time to um, to thank our sponsor, Clio, web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, uh in his new book, uh, Failing Law Schools, Professor Brian Tamanaha gives a pretty scathing assessment of law schools. Professor Tamanaha writes, law schools at every level have been failing their ethical responsibilities while pointing the finger at others. And he doesn't stop there. Professor Tamanaha goes so far as to write the future complexion and legitimacy of our legal system is at stake. Professor Tamanaha from Washington University Law School in St. Louis, Missouri, joins us now. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Brian. Thank you. Uh, well, not everyone has such a bleak outlook of America's law schools. Uh, our other guest today is Dean Susan Poser from the University of Nebraska College of Law, and uh, we'll hear more about her perspective uh, on the situation. But uh, welcome to the show, Dean Poser. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And Bob, in the spirit of full disclosure, I have to disclose that I sit on the advisory council for the new uh, UCI Law School here in at uh, University of California, Irvine. So my comments will be a little bit biased by that today, I suspect. But Brian, let's just start out with you. Uh, why did you write the book? What's going on? And why is there such a problem in law schools? Well, I wrote the book because uh, in, in the past few years, it became increasingly clear that students were graduating with high debt, and, and many students either weren't getting jobs as lawyers or were getting jobs that paid salaries insufficient to make the monthly payments on the debt. Now, that was just a sense I had. It actually took writing the book to figure out the, the numbers on it. But it was the, the situation's been going on for, for some years now, the increase in tuition, in particular, an increase in debt. But the legal markets suffered a significant contraction in 2008, and when that happened, it bared open the the poor results that students were were obtaining, uh, graduates were obtaining, in a way that could no longer be ignored. Uh, meanwhile, 
uh, law schools actually increase their enrollment uh, in the first two years of the uh, of the contraction in the legal market, uh, making things worse for graduates. Uh, so I, I thought it was necessary to to get to the bottom of this and actually find out why tuition uh, had gone up so much, what results our graduates are getting, uh, and uh, that ended up in the book Failing Law Schools. Well, Susan, what about you? I mean, do you? What's your perspective on this? Do you think that uh, there's a problem with uh, the promises that law schools are making to students? Well, I think to a large extent um, that depends on the law school. I I, I thought that uh, Professor Tamanaha's book was really excellent. It, it laid bare a lot of what we all know is going on in terms of um, talking about employment statistics and debt load um, and how scholarships are given out. I think that that sounded accurate to me. I haven't done the research, but it's certainly what I think we all know is going on. Um, but there are quite a few law schools out there that are not doing this. Um, in fact, I was delighted to have Nebraska not even mentioned in the book uh, until the very, very end uh, where uh, Professor Tamanaha talks about a few uh, mostly flagship schools uh, in, in you know, state universities that are uh, not engaging uh, in, in a lot of these practices. So there, there are some law schools out there that are not doing this, um, and I think that law schools are succeeding in a lot of ways. So they may be failing in some, but they're succeeding in others. Brian, what do you think needs to be done? I mean, are, who are you going to crack the whip on here? Are you are you after the deans of the various law schools? Are you after the students? Are you after the program itself, or or are you after the ABA? Well, we we all contributed to the problem, and I think. Getting information to the students is a big, uh, prospective students is a big part of the solution. But in fact, it's law schools, the accrediting bodies, the federal loan system, and law professors, as well as administrations that contribute. So it's not one or the other, but sort of all of the above. But let me spell out what the basic problem is so we can see how dramatic the mismatch is. The, the ABA statistics on the class of 2011 were recently released, and only 55% of graduates nationwide, nine months after graduation of the class of 2011, had obtained full-time permanent lawyer jobs, jobs as lawyers. So it's called the bar passage required category. That's 55%. And the number, law schools often say, well, you can also have good results if you're not a lawyer. On the other hand, most people go to law school to become a lawyer. Over 90% of graduates take the bar, which indicates a desire to become a lawyer, at least to practice law. Uh, so the, the, the number is terribly low. And that's only part of the picture because among the people that do obtain jobs as lawyers, the median salary is somewhere around $60,000. And the, the average debt is over $100,000. So here's the fundamental problem. If you earn the median salary or below, you can't make the monthly payments on the average debt. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm giving this broad picture because I want it's important to see that there's a s systemic breakdown in the cost of legal education and the economic return for most students. Now let me say where it is working because I agree with Dean Poser that it is working. Now it works for people who obtain corporate law jobs uh, because median sal uh, salary in that category is about 160,000. Uh, in the top firms, and you can earn 120, 130, 40. Those people are making the monthly payments on their debt, and they're actually doing quite fine. It works for people who land public service jobs, 
because they ha are able to enroll in a debt forgiveness program that has the debt forgiven in, at the end of 10 years. And it works uh, for flagship state schools like the school that Dean Poser leads because their tuition is relatively modest. So the average debt of students coming out of these schools are somewhere around 50 or 60,000, although there are state schools that charge much higher. So Berkeley, for example, charges 50,000, 45 for in-state, over 50 for non-state. So there are categories of students that are doing okay. Um, but the majority of students don't fall into these categories. They don't obtain public service jobs. They're very hard to get. They 10% get corporate law jobs in the high uh, earning sector and not and the the flagship state schools uh, have you know a few thousand graduates so we're talking now about 20 20 30,000 students nationwide that are in a difficult situation uh, so anyway I want I want to uh, part of the key in the book is to see that while it does work for some, for very many it doesn't work. Now, in your, your question about what needs to be done, the big part of what's driven the rise in tuition is that students have been willing to come because they thought it delivered an economic return, and they've been able to come because the federal uh, loan program supported that and without any caps. So one thing I would suggest is we need to uh, alter the federal loan program in several ways to limit their ability to come and limit the ability of law schools to continually raise tuition without any kind of discipline. Well, it, one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I mentioned in the beginning of the program about uh, UCI's new program, but UCI has adopted a bit of a different approach where it is uh, working with its law students from first year to teach them practical uh, application of the law. A lot of the lawyers here in, in Southern California have met at various times with uh, Dean Chemerinsky and a number of the other professors. And the school has developed a, a, a style of a curriculum that is designed to uh, teach lawyers or teach law students how to practice law as well as just what uh, understanding the law itself and learning the Socratic method. But it's also they're also teaching the students what to do. What's your idea about that approach? Uh, I don't get much into pedagogical issues in the book because I keep the focus on the economics of it. I mean, in general, I think students should learn practice skills. I took a clinic when I was a student in law school and I went out and became a public defender and when I, and, and the clinical experience, uh, was a significant help to me in, in getting up to speed. Um, but there is a problem with, with Irvine, Irvine School of Law and the problem is that once the initial scholarship classes passed through, uh, Irvine, Irvine set its tuition at, I believe, 44000 for in-state students and 52000 for out-of-state students. That's the market rate. It's the same price at, at UCLA and Berkeley. And the problem is that Irvine School of Law was set up to be, to, to have a focus on public service. And yet students who attend that school, once the initial scholarship classes will have passed through, will also have a $100,000 plus debt. And students with that level of debt have very limited options going forward. They'll have to seek out corporate law jobs. Uh, so essentially, and I, I actually mentioned Irvine as an example toward the end of the book, as, as really a lost opportunity. And uh, you know, it's not a, about the program. I, I think the program that they have is quite a good one. It's about the cost. How much does it cost to attend Irvine? 
and what options will their students have upon getting out? Well, Susan, let me let me ask you if if you've been uh, portrayed as perhaps a, a, an example of what law schools are doing right. Uh, what what are you doing right? What are those things that you're doing that not every other law school is doing? Well, I mean, our, uh, there are several things that relate to um, the kinds of issues that uh, Professor Tamanaha talked about in his book. I mean, first of all, our faculty are paid well, but they're not paid um, you know, up around the where what he calls the elite school uh, faculty are paid. Uh, second, Nebraska is one of the few states left that that still has a significant amount of state support for the state university, so that we have, um, you know, we're we are subsidized by the state, and that that's not true for many many state universities, and never mind obviously the the private ones. Uh, we don't, you know, we have a beautiful building uh, that was just renovated, uh, but completely with alumni dollars. We have a lot of very, uh, very, you know, very loyal and, and well-off alumni who've really helped us out, who are very loyal to the university and, and to the law school. Um, we've also turned out really excellent lawyers. And so, although we do have more of a local market, uh, we do attract, you know, anywhere from 25 to 35% of the class out of state uh, because we've had pretty good success uh, with our education. So those are some of the things I think we're doing right. We have a very lean administrative staff. And again, uh, but I think a lot of it has to do uh, with the state support and the alumni support. Uh, we've also never tried to do uh, what Professor Tamanaha says Irvine tried to do, which is be sort of ultra elite um, and decide that our goal was going to be, you know, to be a top 25 law school. Uh, we've done fine without that goal, uh, which, of course, brings me to the other issue that hasn't been mentioned yet, uh, but that is a good deal of the book talks about it, uh, is the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Um, and, I, and I think that has to be mentioned here, and, and I think that Professor Tamanaha correctly says that the law schools are, are just in the grip of, a, of this magazine because the students rely on it and the law firms rely on it. Uh, and it's complete nonsense uh, the way in which the rankings are done. As uh, I've pointed out recently in a letter to the New York Times, 40% of the rankings uh, is reputation-based. Uh, which is why, say, why have those rankings come to matter so much? How have they taken on such a significant role in, here? I, I don't know. It's uh, you know they they are where people look again, where students and firms look, and so every all the law schools are trying to you know are are, are concentrating on them when thinking about how to spend their dollars, and it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy because those rankings do not take into account quality of teaching. They do not take into account value. Uh, that is, you know, how, how, how well the students do and how good the education is, how good the teaching is. Uh, they don't, don't take into account the kinds of students that are at the schools and so forth. Uh, and we are in the grip of them, and um, you know, and one possible solution or beginning of a solution, and this is oversimplistic, uh, again, which is why it's only a beginning, and that is really for the schools to simply stop filling out the U.S. news form. Uh, it would be very straightforward. Uh, and every now and then, a, a few deans try to get together and organize such a thing, but it just hasn't taken hold yet. All right, we're going to take a, a short break right now. We'll be right back with more on uh, the new book, Failing Law Schools, uh, and on responses to that when Lawyer to Lawyer returns after this short break. Hi. 
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're discussing a scathing new book about law schools titled Failing Law Schools with the author, Professor Brian Tamanaha, and University of Nebraska College of Law's Dean Susan Poser. And let's continue our conversation. Uh, Susan, before the break, we were talking about the U.S. News and World Report. And admittedly, it's a simplistic solution to try and uh, just simply not fill out the uh, U.S. News and World Report. But, but Brian, what if the ABA said, you're not going to get it accredited if you start filling out law school rankings with uh, U.S. News and World Report or anybody else? Did, well, could, uh, the, could the I, ABA I, I, I don't think that? The, yeah, I don't think the accrediting authority of the ABA would could remotely extend to an action like that. You know, and uh, again, the hold that U.S. News has over law school is very destructive, but I think it's also important to to focus on the fact that it's law schools reacting to it in a particular way that leads to these negative consequences. Or to put it differently, we don't have to obsess about the U.S. News to the extent that we do. And as Dean Poser pointed out, and I, and I say in my book, Part of the problem with what happened with Irvine, and I don't want to focus on them, but that's the example that we're using, is precisely that they strove to uh, obtain elite status right out of the box. And elite status and affordability in, in today's legal academia are mutually exclusive. So it was a choice that that school made, a choice that schools don't have to make. They can choose to uh, provide, uh, have as their goal, uh, excellent legal education at an affordable cost, like the University of Nebraska does, as well as New Mexico, University of Hawaii, Florida. There are many schools that are making this choice. 
The other, uh, thing, it, uh, I, the other thing is, of course, that elite status, as you as you use it in the book, and it's never really actually defined in the book, but I think it is associated with high ranking in U.S. news. Uh, again, it's not associated with the quality of the teaching or the affordability, or you know, a lot of a lot of other possible criteria you could use. Yes, I agree, but uh, but it also needs to be said that legal act. Legal academia in particular, but the legal profession has always had a very elitist orientation, and you can tell by by counting the number of Supreme Court justices that come out of Harvard and Yale and Columbia as opposed to everywhere else. And you know, this I think, as you've pointed out before, Dean Poser, there's this very northeastern elite orientation, and it, it tends to filter down. Many law professors, for example, are higher are, are graduates of Harvard, Yale, Columbia. Uh, so we're responsible in this sense that we pay so much attention to it. And it's true that students do as well, but these are choices that we make. And professors educated at Harvard are, pay attention to whatever ranking their school is at because it matters to them as well. What about the other end of the spectrum? In, here in California, we have unaccredited law schools that are inexpensive comparatively to attend, but the education also suffers from that. Uh, Dean Posner, what's your thought about, uh, you know, lowering the value to the point that uh, you even have to take a baby bar at the end of your first year to see whether or not you're able to continue on in law school for the second and third year? Well, I mean, this gets into something that, again, I, I think uh, Professor Tamanaha didn't discuss because, as he said, it's not, it wasn't really the subject of the book. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's important to keep in mind that this is not, I mean, law school is not, you know, trade school. And if it becomes trade school, um, it's not just a kind of loss of prestige and sort of obvious problems, uh, you know, that, that the monopoly, that the, the people in the monopoly would find with that. But also, you know, lawyers go out and they, they, they create a relationship with an individual a lot of the time, not always. Um, and it's a fiduciary relationship, and it involves things like confidentiality, an understanding of conflicts of interest. They are responsible often for other people's money. We need smart, well, very well-educated people to do those jobs. If, you, if, if you're going to call a lawyer, uh, you want someone who's going to pay attention to you, know their professional obligations, and, of course, know the substance of the law you know, that they're going to deal with. Uh, this is a pretty high standard that we need to hold our graduates to. And so talk about two years of law school and about having uh, two levels of law school, uh, which is another thing Professor Tamanal has, has talked about, you know, one for sort of people who just want to go out and practice and another for people who want to go out and do federal clerkships and, you know, uh, be law professors and work at the 250 top law firms. I think that to divide the profession in that way would be very dangerous, mostly to the clients, to the potential clients. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I, some of those unaccredited law schools are probably okay and some probably aren't. And I'd say the same thing about accredited law schools. What, what matters is what goes on in the classroom uh, and what the students know on a variety of levels uh, when they graduate. The, the economy has tanked in the last couple of years and, and law schools can't be said to be responsible for that. So I mean, what is it that law schools are supposed to be doing with regard to the financial picture here? Are they supposed to be trying to be more transparent uh, about the likelihood and pr prospects for job employment? Are they supposed to be trying to keep their own costs down? Uh, Brian, what is it that you're suggesting here? 
Well, at a minimum, we have to be more transparent, and that's just our obligation to our students and uh, an obligation that, that every business is, is held to. And although we're academic institutions, our students are paying for a service, and they should be advised correctly about what their economic prospects are coming out. So there's no question about that. Uh, but that alone won't solve the problem. The problem is it costs too much for what the majority of students, for the economic opportunities, obtained by the majority of students. And in particular, they, if they can't make the monthly payments on the debt they accumulate in law school, then it doesn't work. Uh, so we have to bring the cost structure down. And this uh, relates to uh, what Dean Poser just said. You know, I've, I talk in the book, and th this, this reform would have to come through the ADA, about a, allowing greater differentiation among law schools. Uh, instead of talking about unaccredited schools in California, I'd rather talk about Massachusetts School of Law in uh, outside of Boston, which was denied accreditation by the ABA, even though it has a fairly good bar pass rate, uh, success rate for its students, uh, because it didn't have a heavy academic component to that. By, by that, what I mean is they don't have research professors on their staff. They have a few... Uh, full-time professors, and then the, the staff has, uh, relies heavily on adjuncts and so forth. Now, the Massachusetts School of Law has been denied accreditation. Actually, I think they even... They now have provisional accreditation, yeah. From, yeah, and, and they're accredited by regional accrediting bodies. So state Supreme Courts have a choice about whether or not they're going to require ABA accreditation. And one of the suggestions I make in the book is that Every law school need not be set up, structured like a research university. Uh, law schools, the bulk of, of faculty members on law schools are in tenure-track, tenured positions. Law professors teach across the country at most law schools 12 credits a year. That's six credits, credit hours a semester. Essentially comes out to four courses. And at elite law schools, or the top 25 schools, they teach three courses a year. And at the very elite law schools, many of them teach eight or nine credits a year. Now, as I say in the book, through most of the 20th century, the standard teaching load was between 13, 14, and 15 credits for most uh, law professors. So we've ratcheted down our teaching load, and that, that adds to the cost, because if we teach less, we need more professors uh, to cover the same course coverage. So there are ways in which we can reduce the cost. Uh, and there are ways in which some law schools can be more affordable than others. And as Dean Poser said, a big part of their, that helps them keep their tuition down is that they have state subsidies. But I'm talking about private law schools. I'm talking about all sorts of schools that won't have a subsidy that can reduce their costs. But these cost reductions require uh, not just a change in the, in the accreditation standards, but also a change in the culture among law professors about our expectations of what the position entails. And right now, we have a huge emphasis on the production of scholarship and uh, and pay much less attention to the fact that uh, students are paying us to teach them to become lawyers. Uh, so the bringing down the cost is essential. Yes, we must be more transparent, but we need to change the way we operate. Dean Posner, how do we educate lawyers to deal with the divide between the rich and the poor? I mean, we've, we've heard much about the 99% and the 1%, and obviously the lawyers that are incurring $100,000 in debt to get out of law school 
can't even begin to work in public law centers or any type of uh, service that you would otherwise get taught in law school and clinics. How do we educate students to do what you want them to do, and, and that is to be responsible, to be moral, to be ethical, uh, and understand what's being done. But how do we educate those students and then have them work in the public sector? Well, I mean, you're right. I mean, if you come out of law school with over $100,000 in debt, you, you just simply don't have a choice about the kind of legal career, if, if you're lucky to have one, um, that you have to pursue. That That's absolutely right. I mean, I I, I think most law schools uh, try, you know, in fact, we're required by the ABA to have an ethics class. Uh, most law schools have some kind of social, ju- you know, opportunity to learn about social justice. In, in some law schools, it's required. Um, and most law schools have clinics, many clinics, so that they, if, if a student wants to, they can do some kind of, uh, you know, practice being a lawyer while they're still um, in law school. Uh, but I agree with Professor Tamanaha that the only way to encourage them to go out and practice in the public interest, which is to say in jobs that don't pay all that well, um, is by not straddling, you know, strangling them with the debt that, that he talks about in the book. I, I think, you know, it just simply comes down to economics there. Uh, we can encourage our students to be good citizens all we want, but if they've still got to, you know, pay their rent and put food on the table and pay their debts back. So uh, it, it's, I think in, in that sense, it's purely economic. And I think a lot of students come into law school thinking they do want to work in some kind of social justice capacity uh, or work for the government. And they, and by the time they get out, they simply don't have the choice. And I, and I think that's really a pity because, as he also points out in the book, um, although everybody talks about the glut of lawyers, uh, in fact, there aren't enough lawyers uh, for people who can't afford to pay them. And it would be, you know, and there have been lots of proposals for how we might get, you know, law students or, or recent graduates to work in the public interest. But um, it, it does come down to an economic issue. Uh, and it's simply impossible in a lot of the situations that, that are described in the book. Yeah, of course, the problem there is a little bit different because, uh, I mean, I think uh, as Professor Tom Naha referred to earlier, there are there are loan forgiveness programs and uh, for uh, going into public service in a lot of schools now and, and other such programs, but a lot of these public service jobs are losing their funding because of budget cuts, because of cutbacks and IOLTA funding, there yeah. just aren't enough jobs in the in in the in the public sector uh, uh, anymore, uh, and 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 that's that's having a that's that's separate from from the law school issue. But well, I mean, there are, issues, had, there are a lot of issues that are separate from the law school issue, but that affected. I mean, another one is again not discussed in the book because I don't think it was the point, but. You know, part of the reason I think that we still need three years of law school is that, you know, law students, and this isn't just true at Nebraska, this is true at the top schools as well, uh, they come into law school and although they may have done very well on their LSATs, they don't really know how to write very well and they don't know how to communicate all that well. And you spend a lot of the first year of law school uh, teaching them legal writing, uh, which many students, again, all up and down the spectrum of law schools struggle with, um, teaching them how to think analytically and read analytically. Now, one could argue that some of the reason we have to do so much of that now um, is because it isn't being done uh, in undergraduate or, for that matter, in high school. Um, so it's a very complicated issue that's that's really very interconnected. It's not just about law schools. And Professor Tanaha, I know your book focuses on law schools, but is it really fair to point the finger just at law schools? Isn't this problem an educational problem for graduate students across the country? I mean, don't 
all graduate schools have a very similar problem? Yeah, I think there's no question that law schools are just a part of, of a huge problem with the economics of higher education. Uh, to say it's not fair to point the finger at law schools doesn't follow from that. I mean, ultimately, we can only control our own context and reform ourselves. So to say that they're, do- they're bad as well doesn't mean we're any less bad. Uh, we do. No, I mean, in the sense that it's a systemic problem and may not need necessarily just an answer within the law, co- law school complex, but it may need an answer that's broader within graduate schools. I mean, maybe we're talking about legislation or we're talking about formal, uh, you know, extending the uh, free high school education through graduate programs. Right. It, it is a broader systemic problem. And that's why one of the main solutions I focus on has to do with changes to the federal loan program, which... Frankly, I think those same changes should be applied throughout higher education. The specific changes I, I suggested, one of, one of those proposals actually is already applied to for-profit schools. I suggested that, that the outcome measures that are applied to for-profit schools for their eligibility for federal loans should be applied to law schools as well. One, just to give you one example, and these, these standards are not that demanding. Uh, at least one-third of the graduates have to be paying back their loans. Now, that's not a high standard. Uh, I don't see why that isn't applied throughout education, higher profit, non-profit. It doesn't really matter as far as I can tell. Uh, so that's one proposal. I also suggest there should be either individual caps on the federal loans, and there are caps for undergraduate in the Stafford loans, but in the graduate context, there are no caps on graduate plus loans. And we should also consider caps on law schools, on how much any particular school uh, can have uh, total loans for, for its students. Whichever solution is picked, and uh, the, I'm putting out various proposals, there have to be some restrictions in the federal loan program. And it's, it's because of the availability of these loans without limit that law schools have been able to keep uh, raising their prices. And I, and in the book, I compare the, the rise of tuition in law schools and in universities, and it's the same phenomenon. Uh, so indeed, you know, I think we're just sort of the worst corner of a of a bigger, broader problem in higher education in the United States. Hey, regrettably, we're just about out of time here. But uh, before we wrap up the show, we'd like to give each of you an opportunity to give us your final thoughts on this subject and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you. So, uh, Susan Poser, why don't you uh, go first? Well, I'll just say that I think that uh, Professor Tamanaha's book is excellent. I think everyone should read it. Um, he he talks about a lot of things that that'll, that we've been afraid to talk about for a long time, and I'm going to be very interested to see uh, what kind of effect uh, it has. Uh, at the same time, I'll say that I think law schools are, are providing really a, a wonderful general education for students, and in some ways, ironically, it's a great time to go to law school because there are, in fact, a lot of scholarships out there, uh, which which is discussed in the book. Um, I can be reached at Susan Poser, just one word, S-U-S-A-N-P-O-S-E-R, at UNL, as in University of Nebraska-Lincoln, dot E-D-U. And thank you very much for having me on the program. Thanks so much. And Brian... Tom and Aha. I, I agree with Dean Poser that uh, law schools provide an excellent education. Unfortunately, it costs too much for the economic return, and that's what the book focuses on. And until this mismatch is resolved, uh, going to law school will be a risky bet. And I think that's, that's the crucial point. It's a bet that does pay off for some, but not for many. And uh, although Dean Poser is right that this is actually a good time to get into law school because schools 
are struggling to fill their classes and therefore offering uh, higher scholarships. It's a very bad time if what you want is a job on, on the back end, and that's because the oversupply of graduates to available jobs is substantial. As I said, only 55% of the class of 2011 had obtained full-time jobs as lawyers nine months after graduation. I can be reached. I'm at Washington University School of Law. I'm happy to hear from anyone about the arguments in the book. Uh, my email address is complicated, but you can find me on the faculty page at Washington University School of Law, and my email address is on there. Thank you. Thanks. And the book is available uh, at all the usual sources? That's right. Okay. Failing Law Schools is the book. Thanks a lot for being with us, both of you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Bob, we'd like to uh, remind our listeners, well, before we remind our listeners of anything, let's get your final thoughts about this. Uh, yeah, Craig, I, you know, I've been thinking through this show how the economics have changed so much from when I went to law school, which was a long time ago. But the, the cost uh, of, of tuition at that point was much lower. We considered it high then, but it was nothing compared to now. And, and the economics uh, of, the, of, the, of the employment sector were so much different. The gap between the big firm salaries and the public sector jobs was, was, was not a major factor in, in, in your deciding on a career at that point. It, the gap wasn't that huge uh, as it is now. And uh, you know, I, I don't think law schools are, are responsible for finding uh, people jobs, but I think law schools do need to be uh, more transparent about the prospects uh, and the economics, uh, and uh, you know, also as as uh, Professor Tamanaha says, uh, make a greater effort to to control their own costs and keep their own costs reasonable. What about you? Right. Well, my thoughts about it is that you know, I know that when I went to law school, I came out of uh, twenty five years ago with a debt of twenty thousand dollars, and within a generation, my oldest son went to law school and came out with a debt of a hundred thousand dollars. So within one generation, law school has gone up by a factor of five, at least in my particular example. So I'm not sure that the education is worth five times that. I know the salaries are not five times what they were when I graduated. So there are some disparities and some, some things that have occurred within the last 25 years that have made some very dramatic changes in the cost of law school. And it would behoove the folks that price those things out to uh, figure out why that happened and what we can do to kind of get back toward a more uh, financial obligation for law students that's a little bit more in line with the salaries that are going to be raised and perhaps give them the opportunity to do some work in the public sector because that the disparity between the rich and the poor is evident not only in the income that we get, but it's also evident in the way that society treats its members. And by causing law students to incur so much debt and need to charge so much to be able to pay it back necessarily excludes a great number of the population from good affirmative legal help. And that is a shame uh, because our profession is so important for all strata of society, not just the wealthy. Yep. Good points. In any event, uh, it's time for us to wrap up, and we want to remind our listeners now that they can get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes, and we have a brand new Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your phone, and we hope shortly to have an iPhone app out. So check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. Bob will be back again next week with another great legal topic. We'll see you then. We'll see you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. 
its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.